Manfred, who had now reached the stairs, was yet unable to keep his eyes from the picture. He saw it quit its panel and descend on the floor with a grave and melancholy air. I'm Bob. I'm Zach. This is Genre. We are two guys who used to work at a bookstore in Portland, Oregon. We used to talk about books for a living. Now we only talk about them for fun. We are reading old genre and pulp fiction with an open mind, exploring what makes them so fantastic. Just a reminder, we have a new email address where you can ask us questions or recommend your favorite books. Talk to us at genrepodcast at gmail.com. This week, we have one of Zach's books, The Castle of Otranto. So, Zach, why this book? We've been sticking to the theme of horror this October, and this book is said to be the very first example of gothic literature. I'm not sure if I've ever read a gothic novel before. I mean, when you talk about gothic things, specific images come to mind. So, like, I'm thinking of gargoyles, dark castles, teenagers listening to The Cure with dyed black hair. So, just good style in general. (laughs) And did The Castle of Otranto live up to your gothic expectations? Uh, Well, yeah, yes, yes and no. For starters, the book does have a really big castle, and some supernatural things do happen, but... I think most of all, I came away with just the thought that this book is actually very funny, as in its writing has a lot of charm and some really good humor in it. And it also seems to have a lot more in common with like medieval and ancient romance adventure stories than I guess what I would think of today as gothic. Yeah, the medieval and the ancient romance element is very important because I think looking at that is kind of how... Toronto emerged, Toronto and the Gothic novel, because the author, Horace Walpole, says, quote, Toronto is an attempt to blend the two kinds of romance, the ancient and the modern, end quote. And the ancient or medieval romance dealt with the supernatural or the magical, or as Walpole puts it, quote, imagination and improbability. End quote. But the modern romance of Walpole's day was based completely on realism, or, quote, a strict adherence to common life, end quote. So blending these two then created this, this monster thing, this monster child, the gothic novel. Yeah, I feel like I should clarify, like, what do we mean when we're talking about romance? I feel like most people hear this word and they imagine like a a shirtless hunk of cheese on a book cover, or like Danielle Steele and that kind of thing. And those are all nice, but the the romance itself refers to a much longer tradition, you know, generally going back like thousands of years with these really fantastic adventure stories. They might include a love plot, like this one does, or they might not. You know, you keep saying we're going to get to these shirtless hunks of cheese. I got my cheese board ready. When are we going to read the romance books? Anyway, give me an example of ancient romance in in this sense you're talking about. Okay, so as an example, I just finished reading a book on Alexander the Great, and it's called The Alexander Romance. So here, they're using the word romance in contrast to something like a history of Alexander or something like that. And in this book, like... He invents a submarine for fun, 
or he like explores heaven after tying a basket to some birds and flying through the clouds, or he fights like the Amazon tribe of warrior women, like things like that. Whoever wrote these stories lived a long, long time ago. I think the version I was reading from was from like 500 CE. Okay, so this as the ancient romance example meets Walpole's definition because he says it's a story of imagination and improbability. This style of romance is then half of our Gothic style, but the other half, the modern romance, is very focused on realism, so literary realism. And these books have realistic settings, realistic things take place in them. But this distinction is confusing to me because we have the concept of romanticism as well. And I know that this is something kind of reviving medievalism, which loves dreams, nightmares, ghosts, devils, and the supernatural. But here, I think, Walpole is really just talking about two ways of going about writing a book. One in which the book is devoted to reflecting reality as closely as possible, as if each page were a mirror, versus the other kind of book which, you know, allows for these giants, these ghosts, sentient fog, demonic possession. The Castle of Otranto, then, is uh, like an amalgamation or just a weird attempt at pushing these two things, the, the real and the unreal, together, or representing the real and the unreal. Both of these attempts are in the same book. Yeah, and I think it has to be, just I mean, just by virtue of who Walpole is and what the literary context of his time is. I mean, on one hand, it's like, it's like, air quote, aesthetic choice to blend fantastic and realist, or like, I guess, put another way, like the ancient to blend the ancient and the modern. But on the other hand, he writes just like a 1700s author. And I think that's very, very different than how a 500s author or even a 1500s author writes. So, like, despite all of the supernatural elements of the story, the ghosts, the giants, the curses, despite all of that, he's still, like, very, very attentive to the characters' psychological states and, like, what they're feeling, what they want, what their personality quirks are, and, like, what their aspirations are to power. I think it's, I mean, it's, like, it's it's post-Shakespeare, and it's very different from old romance, which... From what I've read of old romance, it has like very flat prose. Like, first this happened, and then that happened, and then that happened after that. You know, something like that. I think aspirations to power is a great phrase because that's really what Otranto seems to be about, Manfred and his aspirations to power. And I want to mention Shakespeare, too, like you said, because in the preface to Castle of Otranto, Walpole mentions Shakespeare. And when reading this this book, it seems very similar, at least as, as the, far as the structure, to Hamlet. And Walpole talks about the ghost, Hamlet's dead father. He used that ghost as a model for his own hermit specter in Otranto, wandering to the castle and warning of past misdeeds. But I want to make one more genre distinction because it could have turned out that, you know, Walpole's attempt of depicting the real and the unreal in the same book, this really could have just turned into magical realism. So why did, why did gothic fiction emerge instead of magical realism, which then emerges 200 years after the Castle of Otranto? So, so both of these genres, they include magical elements in otherwise realistic stories. But as you said, Zach, Walpole focuses heavily on the psychological states 
the brooding and the indecision, the aspirations to power, the, the regret at the attempts to maintain power. And it often seems that the supernatural events, the spooky ghosts, the, the people walking out of paintings are manifestations of these psychological states. Ghosts haunt people for a reason and will continue to do so until something is resolved in the book. And through this process, there's something very pleasurable and exciting throughout the delay of the resolution. And I think this is very gothic. Beyond that, you know, there are lots of tropes and Walpole introduces many of these tropes, which are then carried on in the gothic genre, you know, old castles, ghosts, vanishing objects, etc. Yeah. And I think it's not just castle for the sake of castle either, but it's like, it's really about the atmosphere that he's trying to capture. I mean, this is a person who is well into the Enlightenment, and he's trying to imagine what it felt like to live in the Dark Ages and to use that feeling as an aesthetic. But before we get too much further, we should probably talk about what actually happened in this book. Okay, okay, I feel you. Okay, then who are our main characters in this book? There's Manfred, kind of blustery, power-hungry, lord of the castle. His son Conrad dies pretty early in the book, just before his wedding. And Manfred spends the rest of the narrative trying to steal and marry his dead son's bride-to-be. Who else is there? Ah, the bride-to-be, Isabella. When Manfred proposes to her to make an heir for him, she refuses and flees through the tunnels under the castle. Smart move. But lost, you know, confused and a little terrified, she bumps into a certain someone. A certain very handsome someone. I, I like what you said to make an heir for him. That's that's a euphemism if I ever heard one. Um, but yes, this handsome man in the dark, he is Theodore. So Theodore is a really interesting character because when we first meet him, he's just this nameless peasant. He's he's a true background character if we ever saw one. But then as the story goes, his part really gets larger. And then I guess he emerges as like the hero of the story. It's it's really like a from nothing tale. But and we come to find out that like he is, first of all, not just a nobody, but he's the long lost son of Friar Jerome, the local priest guy. And then by the end of it, we find out he's the true heir to the castle. Hmm. Truly, his part grows larger and larger and larger. Another character is Matilda, who is the neglected, kind of forgotten daughter of Manfred. And then there's Hippolyta, who is Manfred's wife. And she has not like given him a second heir. So Manfred, being without anyone to, to pass on the reins of the kingdom to, he spends a whole novel trying to divorce her. Yeah, so let's run through this plot step by step. Well, we begin on a beautiful day. A wedding is about to happen with the sickly pale Conrad and the fairly beautiful Isabella. Everything is going great, but then suddenly Conrad is squashed and killed. Yeah, by a by a giant helmet that falls from the sky. It's very sudden, it's very violent, and I think it shocks everyone. I think it shocks the reader maybe just as much, if not more, than it shocks the characters in the book because this is like a a, a helmet from a suit of armor that's like a hundred times larger than any person could hold in their head. And it just appears out of nowhere and crushes this boy. Walpole writes that Manfred, quote, beheld his child dashed to pieces and almost buried under an enormous helmet 
a hundred times more large than any cask ever made for a human being, and shaded with a proportional quantity of black feathers, end quote. So after this body splattering incident, Isabella is left without a groom, and Manfred is left without an heir. But quick thinking on Manfred's part, he proposes divorce to his wife Hippolyta and marriage to his ex-daughter-to-be, Isabella. Ex-daughter-in-law-to-be, methinks. So Isabella is horrified at this idea, and she tries to escape. She ends up taking some tunnels that go under the castle, and that's where she meets the, the peasant Theodore. And Theodore helps her escape underneath these, or like, not under, but through these tunnels to a nearby church. And basically her plan is to become a nun for the rest of her life rather than be the wife of Manfred. So you can tell kind of where she's coming from as a character. Here, So here, here's what, what it says in the book. Quote, Could she reach the altar before she was overtaken? She knew even Manfred's violence would not dare to profane the sacredness of the place. And she determined, if by no other means of deliverance offered, to shut herself up forever among the holy virgins whose convent was contiguous to the cathedral. Theodore really gets in hot water with Manfred because Manfred catches him trying to help Isabella escape through the tunnels. But Theodore, being this knightly, perfect gentleman, sacrifices himself, letting Isabella down a trap door so she can get away. But he is left to be captured by Manfred. And Manfred says, quote, Bear him away into the courtyard. I will see his head this instant severed from his body. So the friar of that church, Friar Jerome, he hears this entire story once Isabella gets there. You know, all about the kidnapping, the death, the intention to divorce his wife, just just all of this scandal. So the friar goes to the castle and he's really going there to chew out Manfred. I think divorces at this time were a much bigger no-no than now. And, and the friar could really confront Manfred about his behavior because he's a friar. I guess in a sense, he's he's untouchable. He could, he could be the voice of conscience and reason in this story. So while this friar is there chewing out Manfred, he happens to see a man being readied for execution. And this is Theodore, of course, who Manfred has just threatened and decided to kill. When Theodore removes his shirt to begin the execution, Friar Jerome suddenly recognizes the mark of an old arrow wound on Theodore's shoulder and says, quote, Gracious heaven, cried the holy man, starting, What do I see? It is my child, my Theodore. I'm going to cut the, sorry, let me, I'll just cut the, yeah. Gracious heaven, what do I see? It is my child, my Theodore. Okay, so there Jerome is, and he's begging Manfred to save Theodore's life. Why? Because Theodore is his son, his long-lost son. Manfred, master negotiator and confirmed villain as he is, says that he will trade Jerome's life only for the life of Isabel, who the friar is now protecting inside of the church. So they're really at a standstill here. The friar doesn't want to give up Isabella because that would be unethical. And Manfred doesn't want to give up Theodore because, you know, he's a he's he's a villain. So suddenly trumpets ring out and we get the appearance of these knights from a foreign kingdom. Oh, I love this part. So, quote, first came two harbingers with wands, 
Next, a herald, followed by two pages and two trumpets. Then, a hundred foot guards. These were attended by as many horse, after them fifty footmen clothed in scarlet and black, the colors of the night. End quote. And then just more and more and more. More knights, more page boys, more heralds. But what's really strange about all this is what a hundred of the knights are carrying. So, quote, a hundred gentlemen bearing an enormous sword and seeming to faint under the weight of it. Okay, so a giant sword has just entered the picture, and we've already seen a giant helmet. Interesting. So Manfred is entertaining these knights, and his daughter, Matilda, she sneaks into the, the prison tower and she frees Theodore. So another chase happens. This time Theodore is trying to run to where Isabella is hiding. One of the knights shows up and starts fighting Theodore. Theodore stabs this knight, and they remove his armored helmet, and he is revealed to be dun, da, 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 Frederick. Who's Frederick? He is the father of Isabella. So Theodore has just stabbed Isabella's dad. Lots of long-lost children going on here. Frederick falls in love with Matilda. Frederick and Manfred make a deal. I'll marry your daughter if you'll marry mine. Soon Isabella and Manfred will be a pair, and Frederick and Matilda will be a pair. Yeah, lots of lots of dads marrying other dads' daughters going around. So some time goes on, some feasting happens, and then, you know, a little later, some word reaches Manfred that Isabella was spotted at the church again, and she's with Theodore. So Manfred goes down, and he's pissed. He's really mad. He pulls out a knife, and he stabs Isabella. <gasps> but wait. <gasps> Just like Theodore got them confused in the dark, so has Manfred got them confused. It's not Isabella at all, but actually Matilda. Stab! Manfred has killed his own daughter. Ah, geez. Okay, so now it turns out that Matilda and Theodore had fallen in love, and it wasn't Theodore and Isabella. So Manfred just killed his own daughter. This looks really bad, and a lot of things happen really, really fast. First, because he's now shown to be unworthy and kind of a scoundrel, he gives up his claim to being the, the owner of the castle. He gives up his claim to rule so that he can live the religious life of a monk with Hippolyta. Next, it's revealed that Theodore is actually the rightful heir to the throne. Finally, Theodore then settles for Isabella, who is not stabbed to death, and he becomes the new ruler of the castle of Otranto. So the castle of Otranto is wiped completely clean of Manfred and all of his family. Tell me more about this being wiped clean. What happens here? Well, they put on their hazmat suits and they get all their disinfectant. But, you know, this family was never supposed to be there in the first place. Remember back to the beginning of the book when, when they're getting ready for that wedding. The wedding is described as happening, quote, in great haste, end quote, because of some mysterious curse. There was a curse on the house of Manfred because long ago, Manfred's grandfather, who was just a servant in the castle of Otranto, betrayed his king, killed him, and took the throne. So Manfred wanted Conrad married to be ready to sit in the throne as soon as possible just to keep the castle in the Manfred clan. Okay, yeah, so... I think for the most part, our previous plot summary was 
very realist. Like it took all of the actual happenings of the book. It was very matter of fact. But now we're starting to bring in the juicy stuff because Manfred is carrying this like intergenerational curse. It's the crimes of his father's father coming back to destroy his life. What can you tell me about this curse? Yes. So Walpole in the preface considers the book something like, quote, the sins of fathers are visited on their children to the third and fourth generation, end quote. And the curse comes in in the form of a, a prophecy. And so this prophecy goes, quote, that the castle and lordship of Otranto should pass from the present family whenever the real owner should be grown too large to inhabit it, end quote. And so this prophecy makes me think that there is some resistance against Manfred, you know, growing and growing. But what is it? Wow, this prophecy is pretty obscure. I think that for 98% of this book, it's really confusing because, well, A, because we believe that Manfred is the owner of the castle, and B, we keep getting all these ghostly sights. I mean, there's the giant helmet that crushes the boy, but people also keep seeing actual giants. Like one of the servants goes into the gallery chamber and sees a massive foot and leg. So I'm assuming that this is like a really, really large, like impossibly large person roaming the castle. But all this stuff makes the reader think that we're talking about like a physical largeness. But by the end of the book, we know that Theodore is the rightful heir. The castle and lordship of Otranto should pass from the present family whenever the real owner should be grown too large to inhabit it. Okay, so Manfred is the, quote, present family, end quote, and Theodore is the, quote, real owner. So what does it mean when we say he's grown too large to inhabit it? Let's look at a quote when Theodore comes back to the castle. So Walpole writes, quote, The moment Theodore appeared, the walls of the castle behind Manfred were thrown down with a mighty force, and the form of Alfonso, dilated to an immense magnitude, appeared in the center of the ruins, end quote. Alfonso is the king betrayed by Manfred's grandfather. Wow, this is getting complicated. Okay, so Alfonso is the guy who Manfred's grandpa poisoned. He's a he's like the real dashing hero type, total lawful good. And we get some scenes of some of the servant girls kind of like swooning over his portrait kind of a thing. And this Alfonso, as it happens, is the ancestor of Theodore. So it's being related to Alfonso that makes Theodore the heir to the castle. It's because he's the hidden grandchild of Alfonso. This is why Theodore is the rightful owner of the castle. And there's a, the hermit ghost appears again to speak to everyone after this destruction. And he says, quote, behold in Theodore, the true heir of Alfonso, end quote. So, so quite literally, I mean, the prophecy is about physical largeness. The, the patriarch Alfonso, whose giant statue is right outside the castle, either the statue or his ghost grows so large that it actually destroys parts of the house. He drops his helmet through the roof. He kicks his hand and then his leg through different walls. And it reminds me of Alice in Alice in Wonderland when she grows so large, her feet, you know, her feet shoot out of the doors and her head bumps the roof off the, the house so it sits on her head like a hat. Okay, okay, so that makes a lot of sense. The prophecy, the person that the prophecy is referring to isn't necessarily Theodore. It's actually talking about the gro- the ghost of Alfonso being too large for the house. 
And I, I love the line that comes right after what you're talking about when, when Alfonso's ghost really returns. You know, he destroys the house, like you said, and then it says, quote, accompanied by a clap of thunder, it ascended solemnly towards heaven, where the clouds parting asunder, the form of St. Nicholas was seen, and receiving Alfonso's shade, they were soon wrapped from mortal eyes in a blaze of glory. So basically, Alfonso's ghost destroys the castle and then ascends to heaven. Super cool. All right, so let's talk about this. Is Walpole's writing true to the medieval experience? What do you, what do you feel about, about this? Well, we, we have the castle itself. The castle of the Toronto is an old medieval castle. We have plenty of knights, even a giant sword, a bunch of sword fights and court intrigue. And as far as pitting realism and fantasy against each other in one book, we have this realistic story with realistic events interrupted by fantastic giant feet, giant hands, giant helmets. This book, 1764, is realized at the height of neo-Gothic architecture, which the author Walpole was completely obsessed with. Neo-Gothic or Gothic revival architecture, it's also called, emerges in the 1740s. And this style is a throwback to the original style in the 12th century, Gothic style. And so, you know, this is the style with um, really high towers, flying buttresses, pointed arches, rib vaults, and those those massive just sharp spires that jut up into the sky. So famous examples are St. Denis, the St. Denis Basilica, the Roms Cathedral, or the Strasbourg Cathedral. Or, you know, you can picture just the hunchback of Notre Dame. Okay, so just to be clear, these these aren't actually 500-year-old buildings. They're buildings that are made to look 500 years old? Yeah, the, the neo-Gothic style is. The old ones are the 12th century, but this new style is happening in Walpole's day, just trying to look like it's really old in that Gothic style. And he gets so obsessed with this because he he starts his own project, and his house is very famous, and it actually created a whole new style itself, the Strawberry Hill style, and he calls his house Strawberry Hill. He buys this really old, okay manor overlooking the River Thames in England. And after this long, long process of renovation, he turns it, what used to be this old 17th century manor, into something that looks like a Gothic castle of the 12th or 13th century. Okay, so just there you compared him making this manor, which is still around today, to him making the novel. How do you figure? Uh, well, just for example, Walpole got flack for, for both, for the novel and for Strawberry Hill. With the, the Castle of Otranto, he was trying to pass off a contemporary novel, something that he wrote, as if it were a found manuscript written 200 years earlier. And he says, you know, I am the translator of this lost manuscript. Then with Strawberry Hill, he is changing a 17th century manor house to look like a 12th century Gothic house or castle. Both the book and the house are trying to use the past as as just this aesthetic. And I keep seeing the word gloomth thrown around, and I love it. So it's it's like the word gloom, but with a little extra oomph. Gloomph. I'm not sure exactly how to understand it, though. So, like, is the oomph supposed to harken back to, like, King James's English or something with, like, the thys and the the thous, you know, things like that? I'm not sure, but it's definitely inspired me to add a whole lot more oomph to my vocabulary. Nice rug. Yes, it really ties the whole oomph together. Strawberry Hill, though, was actually just recently 
restored again, maybe I think 10 years ago, back to how Walpole had it by the end of the 18th century. And it will soon be open again to tourism. And it, it's really an interesting project. The restorationists have, they've, they've finished most of it. You know, they've done the rebuilding, the painting, putting up the new wallpaper in the style of Walpole's style and done all the gold leafing. But they're still in the process, and it's a very long process, of reobtaining all the original paintings and furniture and strange objects, which Walpole spent, I think, 20 or 30 years collecting. And he furnished the house specifically to create an odd feeling. So all of these, it's almost like a cabinet of curiosities, but just really beautiful and kind of creepy. And he he did this to add, like you said, that gloomth feeling in his little gothic castle is what he called it. And so, so for instance, there's there's famous portraits of triple murderers in prison. There's a there's a huge cabinet of little ivory miniatures, and then then there were strange benches outside in his gardens, like one that's shaped exactly like a seashell. And what's really interesting is he was so detailed about this process that he cataloged it in this book. Every item that he ever had in this house is listed in this book room to room, and you can still read room to room, what he had collected. Yeah. And I read that some of the things that he populated this house with weren't even medieval. So like, for example, he'd have artifacts from ancient Rome. I found this quote in Nick Groom's book called The Gothic, very short introduction, if you've seen that series around at bookstores, where he says that, quote, Walpole has been accused of lacking in seriousness and seeking only aesthetic effect at the expense of veracity. So once again, aesthetics before truth. Well, okay, that's that's a fair criticism. It looks just like appearance, and you know, appearance trumps truth in this case. But there's a professor from the University of Michigan, his name is Sean Silver, and he argues that Strawberry Hill represents the Gothic and the, I guess, the concepts or the what, zeitgeist of the Gothic, because the emphasis is on aesthetics and it's based on process. So not getting not not the process for the sake of the finished object but right, moving towards the object for the sake of the process walpole was co- collecting and continually adding to all of this to to achieve an effect to achieve an appearance and that's that's that gloomth effect yeah and part of the way that the story builds that aesthetic is through the 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 framing device that he uses so like he plays the story off as a translation and he said that what we're reading today was like a found manuscript, right? So like he was saying that this story date was printed in the 1500s in Naples and that the events that it describes, like the story itself goes back even further still, like all the way back to the crusades. Walpole, he just happened to find this manuscript and translated it and published it. So that's what he's passing it off as. But did, did anyone believe this when it came out? I don't know. I, I mean, some people must have thought that it was real. So the first printing, it sold out extremely quickly, but it was printed pseudonymously. So no one really knew who he was or whether he was involved in it. And then it was on the second printing that he used his real name and explained what was actually going on. And it's funny because the people really quickly turned on him. Like the critics were deeply, deeply annoyed. And I guess it's an open question then as it is now. If you play off something like this as a translation, is it a really cool literary effect or is it just like a good old fashioned hoax? Well, what's wrong with either? Either, you know, but this became a common trope in Gothic fiction. 
this whole authors playing I, well, what feels like a game with the readers, you know, passing off their novels, sometimes as translations of, you know, forgotten texts. I found this this manuscript in this old library. It's going to blow your mind. Or they even did things like collections of letters, claiming books were collections of letters. One example is Anne Radcliffe. She published her novel, The Italian. And she says that it's a translation of a mysteriously found manuscript. Or then we have Bram Stoker, who frames Dracula as a collection of letters. And we see this, I think, more recently with radio dramas like War of the Worlds, where it sounds like it's a police report or the, or the news talking to you over the radio about an alien invasion. Terrifying. Then we have really recent movies like The Blair Witch Project. Yeah, and I think a massive part of what made Blair Witch scary at the time was that it was the first time that storytellers had tried to use this effect in cinema. I mean, like found footage films are like the the translation of that medium. Yeah, and then it just keeps coming out too. Like Cloverfield is doing the same thing. I think we'll just keep seeing movies like that. But in books, it seems to have been more complicated because it really didn't work with a million little pieces. And that's a book that's the author's saying it's a memoir, but a lot of it was not true to the author's life. And, you know, maybe this didn't work because you you can't fake a memoir or maybe you you don't dupe Oprah. So who knows really why he got so much flack. But I think people, one, don't like being tricked into giving someone sympathy. For instance, you know, SpongeBob, when he goes too far ripping his pants, pretending to be dead in order to set up the perfect joke. But Things like Blair Witch and War of the Worlds are for entertainment and are thrilling, I think. And I think Castle of Otranto falls more with Blair Witch and War of the Worlds because, you know, it's that kind of shtick to get people scared and excited about something that's harmless. And just for instance, I want to want to talk about the poster of the Blair Witch Project. It's just a missing persons poster. It's the three characters on a black poster, and it says when they went missing. And then the trailer, for instance, starts like this, quote, In October of 1994, three student filmmakers disappeared in the woods near Burkittsville, Maryland, while shooting a documentary. A year later, their footage was found. And the preface to Castle of Otranto starts like this. The following work was found in the library of an ancient Catholic family in the north of England. It was printed at Naples in the black letter in the year... 1529. Another example is the when the American version of The Ring first came out, the marketing campaign played the cursed videotape, which happens in the movie over and over again. It's the, the tape that the girl climbs out of a well and she comes to kill you. So they played this that scene all over late night TV for a whole summer without explaining or saying what it was there for. It just appeared on your TV. This girl comes out, starts walking towards the screen of your TV then it's over, and then the regular programming goes back on. So this kind of horror works because it's hinting that it's actually rooted in real-life events. And I think in real life, enough like unexplained or spooky things happen that you can hear these kind of stories, and they can seem to be like somehow possible or even like right on the edge of disbelief. And I think that's why people read The Castle of Otranto as a horror novel. The interpersonal dynamics and the setting feels really realistic, but the supernatural events, they're just interspersed throughout the plot, and they happen almost without comment. It's, it's really interesting. Yeah, and it seemed to work really well when it came out as far as 
terrifying people because Walpole's contemporary, his name is Thomas Gray, he's a poet. He says that the Castle of Otranto, when it came out, quote, made some of us cry a little and all in general afraid to go to bed at night, end quote. So it was received as pretty horrifying at the time. There are parts of this book which I find pretty terrifying, but these are the more realistic parts, mostly, you know, fathers swapping daughters, stuff like that. I thought that was scary. I think that this was maybe not the terrifying part, though, in the 18th century, because that was kind of already going on in a lot of the, the realistic romances. I think maybe what was terrifying was the realistic setting. What is supposed to be a mirror on real life is suddenly broken apart by these supernatural events. For instance, the ghosts coming out of paintings, the giant helmets crashing through the roof. I think that it's interesting because I find these kind of fun and thrilling and humorous. I don't find them scary. But I think that maybe these are the elements that were keeping people like Thomas Gray up at night. We're going to take a quick break to say that if you like this book and want to read something similar, check out Pinocchio by Carlo Collodi. It's the non-Disney-fied version of our favorite puppet in a remarkably more violent and troubling tale meant to scare children into behaving well. Like the Castle of Otranto, Pinocchio blends fantastic adventure yarns with a somewhat realistic setting. If you like books that let you peer into the past of different genres that you know and love today, this is a great one to explore next. You can listen to our discussion of the story in Genre Podcast Episode 4, and you can listen to the story itself through Audible. We have partnered with Audible.com to bring you a free 30-day trial and an audiobook of your choice. Go to our link, which is audibletrial.com slash genre podcast. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash genre podcast. Let's get back to the episode. Let's look at these moments in more detail. Part of the shock is that they appear without any kind of warning or explanation. We see what occurs, but we don't know what it means or, or why it's happening. And some of these events remain really mysterious. A few gain context based on the revelations that happen at the end of the book. Like, for example, the man climbing out of his portrait and running around the house. In the moment, we're told that it's the grandfather of Manfred. But as readers, this is just meaningless extra information because we don't know who this grandfather is. It's not until the big reveal at the end of the book that we learn that he was the servant and the poisoner to the heroic Alfonso. I want to mention the, the ghost walking out of the portrait again because this supernatural moment is very interesting. The context around it, when it happens, is Manfred is trying to force Isabella into marriage. And then the portrait just sighs. So, quote, Manfred says, Do I dream? Or are the devils themselves in league against me? Speak, internal spectre. Or if thou art my grandsire, why dost thou too conspire against thy wretched descendant, who too dearly pays for... Ere he could finish the sentence, the vision sighed again, and made a sign to Manfred to follow him. Lead on, cried Manfred. I will follow thee to the gulf of perdition. End quote. So we, we know something is up. There is something haunting Manfred and likely haunting him for a good reason. But this haunting thing or this haunted portrait was a new convention at the time. 
ghosts coming to warn people had been done in Hamlet, at least, and readers might have recalled that the ghost in Hamlet had some unfinished business and thought, okay, well, this ghost in Otranto might have some unfinished business as well. But unlike Hamlet, we aren't told what the nature of this business is until the very end. So instead, in Otranto, we have a suspenseful, uneasy feeling about Manfred and Manfred's position as king, but we don't know exactly why. We're just uneasy about it. Yeah, that's very true. And I can think of older examples where ghosts running around were because of improper burials. Like, you know, if someone drowns at sea and their sailor friends don't fish up their body and bury it in the earth, their soul will forever be restless, that kind of thing. But the image in the castle of Otranto gets richer or maybe more complicated because at first he isn't presented as like this restless ghost, but he's just literally a figure in a painting climbing out of his portrait. And speaking of, you know, climbing out of portraits and spooky ghost portraits, we can see a lot of this in gothic throwbacks and other horror films that come out after this. You know, whenever we have a a castle or a manor story, we're often entering an inheritance story. And more often than not, there there's a long hallway with many portraits of these grandfathers and great-grandfathers and great-great-great-great-great-grandfathers just lining this hallway. Someone walks through them, sees all these terrifying faces that have owned the house in the past. We see this in Knives Out. The patriarch has his portrait up in the house, almost as if he is still in it, uh, watching and judging and seeing who deserves the house until finally the will is opened up and the true inheritor gets to claim it. We see different versions of this in these other twists, Uh, say in Harry Potter, all of the portraits immortalize dead witches and wizards who continue their life in the portraits. And even in the headmaster's room, every past headmaster is present watching over Dumbledore. Yeah, something about portraits is just inherently spooky, or at least it lends itself to being used in a supernatural setting. Yeah, it's great for regret. Like there's always, you know, eyes watching you. It's great for, are you going to do the right thing? That kind of tension in a book. and. It changes all the time, too, because I want to give another example, like Scooby-Doo, for instance, there, there's always the bad guys watching behind the portraits just to hide and get away with something, really. So it's not quite the same. But we have another, I think, more interesting twist with Dorian Gray using the portrait as not a way to not for the past to watch you, but as a replacement for your future. So the portrait in Dorian Gray ages so that the real person can stay young forever. And let's not forget Super Mario 64. You have a spooky, empty castle, and you jump into these portraits that are hanging all along the walls to portal into different worlds. Fantastic game. Fantastic game. And I think Otranto might be the start of all this because it it needs to be there because there's the presence of Manfred's family history, which is represented by this grandfather's portrait hung up in the castle. And all of this family history and the family relationship to the castle is all at stake, especially in this scene, because Manfred needs Isabella to give him an heir, and the portrait comes to life, sighs, and talks to Manfred. And so it it feels to me, and to the reader, that the whole castle has a lot of anxiety and dread inside it, all around Manfred's position as king. And so the castle and things in it are starting to come to life to intervene or to do something about it. Yeah, that's a really good point about like the castle itself coming to life. Yeah, yeah, as if like a a manifestation of the dread and anxiety. Interesting. Okay, 
So another supernatural element that I really liked was when the statue of Alfonso gets a nosebleed. So for context, Manfred has just proposed this double marriage to Frederick. Remember, Frederick, he's seen as the person with the closest blood relationship to Alfonso. So by marrying Frederick's daughter, Manfred is trying to really cement his claim as the legitimate ruler. Here's what the author says, quote, It is done, replied Manfred. Frederick accepts Matilda's hand and is content to waive his claim, unless I have no male issue. As he spoke these words, three drops of blood fell from the nose of Alfonso's statue. Manfred turned pale, and the princess sank on her knees. Behold, said the friar, mark this miraculous indication that the blood of Alfonso will never mix with that of Manfred, end quote. King of the creeps, Manfred the Manipulator, even taking advantage of his dead son to marry his pre-widowed bride-to-be. I wonder if this book was especially terrifying to wealthy property owners at the time. These were the people who were born into a life of leisure. So maybe that poet Thomas Gray and the like, the, the rest of the literary community who are all of these men of leisure, maybe they were kept up at night by these spooky images of a house and of wealth rejecting men's claims on it. It's a little like if Stephen King's Christine were not a Plymouth, but a yacht. We need to start writing scary yeah, I stories. Me too. <laughs> I think this is it. Like, what do you make of this prophecy, though? Wait, are there multiple prophecies in this book? Yeah, I think so. There, There's the prophecy which Manfred is worried about at the very start, and hence why he's marrying off sickly pale Conrad. So this this prophecy goes, quote, that the castle and lordship of Otranto should pass from the present family whenever the real owner should be grown too large to inhabit it, end quote. And then there's that gigantic sword, which was dug up and then had to be carried by 100 knights all the way to the castle. As soon as they reached the helmet, quote, the gigantic sword burst from the supporters and falling to the ground opposite to the helmet remained immovable, end quote. And on the sword... There's a second prophecy etched in the metal. Here's the prophecy, quote, Where'er a cask that suits this sword is found, with perils is thy daughter compassed round. Alfonso's blood alone can save the maid, and quiet a long restless prince's shade, end quote. But what on earth does this mean? Okay, let's look at it line by line. Where'er a cask that suits this sword is found. So, cask is an old word for helmet. So, wherever a helmet that goes with the sword is. So, remember, Conrad was killed by a giant helmet, and that this helmet is randomly floating around throughout the book. So, wherever there's a helmet that goes with a sword, it sounds like it can only be referring to the castle of Otranto. It reminds me a little of a magician switching people in a vanishing cabinet, because after Conrad is crushed and turned into a puddle of blood, who, being then imprisoned inside the helmet, replaces Conrad. It's Theodore. So the next line, quote, with perils is thy daughter compassed round. Whose daughter are we talking about here? Is this Manfred's daughter or Frederick's daughter? Well, Frederick is the one who receives the prophecy. And I suppose that both daughters get into trouble in this story. But I'm thinking that since the prophecy was delivered to Frederick, it must be referring to Isabella. Okay, but Perils is thy daughter compassed round. What are these perils? Ugh, forced marriage, flight and capture, having to hide out in a church for the remainder of her days. 
attempted murder at the end of the book. All of these seem pretty perilous. Okay, so she's pretty compassed around with perils. Okay, granted. But the next part, quote, Alfonso's blood alone can save the maid. That seems pretty self-explanatory. Yeah, I guess there's two ways to read it. For Frederick, who sees himself as having a monopoly on the Alfonso blood, that means him. Only Frederick can save her. But actually, Theodore, we come to find, could also fit this description. Okay, so we've narrowed it down then to two potential heroes to fulfill this prophecy. Uh, There's the virtuous and gallant Theodore, or the conniving daughter-swapping Frederick. So I wonder, with that final line of the prophecy, what is it trying to tell us? Quote, and quiet a long, restless prince's shade, end quote. Seems pretty self-explanatory. Shade is a super old word for ghost. I think in the the Hebrew Bible and in Greco-Roman stories, the word for soul is generally translated as shades, especially after they leave the body. That makes sense. And I think that they use the word shade to refer to the ghost in Castle of Otranto as well. So the rightful owner then, Prince Alfonso, the betrayed and murdered prince, he is going to be restless because he has unfinished business. But I want to throw something else out here, because when I think shade, I think of a nice day at the park with a picnic basket, you know, maybe a little wine, a little bread. So Prince Theodore has long lived as a peasant and has been wandering through life with no idea about his bloodline status, no idea who his father is, no idea that he should inherit the castle. So he's also restless. I wonder if Theodore might also be the prince coming to save the princess so the two can go out under the shade on a nice picnic. Is that too corny? Jesus, Bob. Okay, we're halfway through October right now. Our big, bad month of horror. What do you want to read next? Well, we've got all this giant in the castle stuff, but it's left me wondering, where are the vampires? So I propose we read The Vampire by Lord Byron's old buddy, John Polidori. I'm actually really interested in reading The Vampire because I think that its story surrounding its competition might be so famous that it actually overshadows the story itself. I guess, which is my way of saying that I don't know anything about this book. Well, published in 1819, The Vampire came out of the same let's write ghost stories to terrify each other on this rainy night because there's a ghost out there contest that also produced Frankenstein. So P.B. Shelley, Mary Shelley, Lord Byron, and John William Polidori sat around writing, trying to scare each other. Was Byron an actual lord, or was that just like a cool nickname? He was the lord of a decrepit manor, which was left to him, but it was drafty, full of holes. But still, he threw parties in it, you know, drinking wine from his skull of a monk. Huh. So what I'm hearing is that homeownership is really all you need to become a lord. Finally, I have something to aspire to. That's right. Get your monk skull out and crack open Zazzle.com, ladies and lards. Join us next week. We're reading The Vampire by John William Polidori. Talk to you later, Zach. Talk to you later, Bob.